and welcome to the fourth episode of the Banking Litigation Podcast. Today, I'm excited to say that we have the first of our special editions. Our regular listeners will be aware of our monthly updates on key judgments and regulatory updates in the sector. But for our first special edition, we will be delving into one subject that I'm sure will be of interest to you all. So the format is slightly different this week, but I'm pleased to say that Kerry Morgan, our Banking Litigation PSL, is by my side as ever. And we are joined this month by Harry Edwards, partner here in the Banking Litigation Department. Good to have you with us, Harry. And today we're going to be focusing on LIBOR discontinuation. Obviously a a hot topic as we move towards a brave new world uh, from 2021, where LIBOR, as we know it, will no longer be with us. And here at the firm, more generally, we've been looking at this issue from a a broad perspective, and I know that our colleagues have been working at it from a a transactional context uh, and its impact on on contractual documents in different sectors and possible amendments there. But as I'm joined by two litigators today, uh, we will be focusing on the litigation aspects of LIBOR discontinuation. And Harry and Kerry are our resident experts on the topic, uh, and I know you've both published a number of articles on the subject, be that in one of our e-bulletins and your articles in Gibbler and Thomson Reuters, which I'm sure uh, some listeners may have seen. So as you two are in the know, I'm going to hand over and say, uh, what have you got for us on this? Who's going to start us off? I am actually, David, thanks. So um, all the indications are that LIBOR will end in 2021. Um, And this raises a number of issues um, which the regulators are particularly concerned about. In fact, They've been uh, publishing a number of speeches and have recently sent out a Dear CEO letter to banks uh, in order to make sure that they are getting their house in order as to how to deal with the consequences of LIBOR no longer being published from 2021. That raises obviously a couple of um, key questions, The, the first of which is what to replace it with. And the markets are still... Uh, developing uh, the replacement uh, choice. But um, in this market in particular, so the London or UK market, the likely replacement is uh, something called SONIA, which is the sterling overnight interbank average rate. Now, that has a particular importance uh, from the perspective of what that means when you replace LIBOR with SONIA. A straight-for-straight swap wouldn't really work. For for this reason, uh, SONIA is, as its name suggests, an overnight rate rather than LIBOR, which is very much a term rate. And the result of that is that inherently SONIA will be a lower reference rate than LIBOR would be. The consequence of that is if you were simply to swap one for the other, there would be a possibly significant value transfer for one party or the other as a result of that lower rate. And that is going to cause particular difficulties, we think, given the sheer scale of the contracts which are linked to LIBOR presently. Right. And just sort of handing over then, Kerry, what have you got for us on this? Well, so I think really picking up on um, Harry's end point there, the value transfer and the problems that that's going to cause is going to lead to um, fairly inevitable litigation risks. And we're going to focus today on the legacy contracts that are in place rather than going into uh, various amended form and new contracts um, because of time constraints and really just to focus on those key issues that will certainly arise under pre-existing documentation. So all those legacy contracts, they have 
in them, in in every market, a fallback of some kind in uh, which, which will come into play if LIBOR uh, is not available. The problem with those fallbacks is, of course, that they're all intended to operate in the event of a temporary uh, unavailability of LIBOR. Just say on one day the LIBOR screen rate was um, not it was not possible to obtain, um, and so. With those types of fallbacks coming into play, our problem is that some of them just won't work in an environment where LIBOR is discontinued permanently. So take, for example, um, one such fallback, which is uh, the interpolated rate. So uh, where LIBOR of uh, one tenor is not available, you could replace it with another. If LIBOR discontinues in its entirety, then uh, that is just simply not going to work because there's nothing to come in the place of the one that's missing. Uh, there are some that will potentially work. So, for example, the historic screen rate is one type of fallback, which uh, it, which appears in a number of different markets. Uh, that would mean that the LIBOR that was available on a Thursday where LIBOR just continues on the Friday, the Thursday rate would continue, but that would be forever, therefore converting a floating rate to an effective fixed rate, which is possible, but obviously would have inherent problems. The consequence is that there's likely to be winners and losers if any of these fallbacks come into play, and where you've got that kind of scenario, litigation is almost inevitable. So today we're going to run through the different types of potential claim that could be brought in those circumstances. So one of the most obvious ways in which litigation might arise, largely as a result of the winner-loser type scenario that Kerry's just talked about, is using the tools of contractual interpretation or perhaps implied terms to seek to avoid the consequences of the fallbacks within the contracts applying and instead uh, introduce an alternative, whether it's Sonia or Sonia with um, some kind of adjustment to reflect the value transfer that I described. The challenge I think that this is going to raise is that the uh, traditional tools of contractual interpretation and implied terms don't naturally uh, come to the assistance of anyone in the context of these types of contracts. So take the loan market, for example. Um, we've looked at quite carefully the LMA standard documentation and have looked at the various fallbacks that uh, appear under that. Um, in order to say that, by uh, as a matter of contractual construction, that instead of LIBOR, the court should be invited to read in, uh, say, SONIA or some other replacement rate, the, the test of contractual interpretation is going to be uh, a hindrance to that, I think. The test, as you'll all know, is whether a reasonable bystander would have um, understood the, the words in the contract to have meant what the parties are um, seeking to, uh, it to mean. And I think that's particularly challenging in this instance, because as we've uh, described briefly, these replacement rates are still developing. They have not even yet uh, properly been uh, uh, concretely uh, described or set by the market. And in those circumstances, a party seeking to say that at the time of entry into the contract, the reasonable bystander would have understood references to LIBOR to be references to that replacement rate seems very challenging indeed. 
if anything, seeking to say that the court should imply terms into the contract that every reference to libel should be uh, referred to as libel or any replacement that is uh, determined by the market in which it operates is also going to be challenging. The courts have been very clear that implied terms need to be uh, carefully um, uh, governed and there is a, a various multi-step uh, test that needs to be met in order for implied terms to come into the contract. The first of those is that that implied term goes without saying or is needed for commercial coherence. It is at least arguable, I think, that there is a ground to say that such a, an implied term is needed for commercial coherence, given some of the very uncommercial consequences that arise uh, as a result of some of the traditional fallbacks. For example, the one that Kerry mentioned about the last available LIBOR essentially fixing the rate um, for perpetuity. Uh, that's an obvious example. So I can see parties potentially being able to make some ground with the commercial coherence argument. But the problem is that those the next two stages are going to be very difficult. So the first of those is that the implied term must be clear and certain. And for similar reasons, um, as I've described in relation to contractual interpretation, I think that's going to be challenging in circumstances where there is no currently settled uh, replacement rate. But then finally, the implied term must not contradict express terms in the contract. And I think in circumstances where you've got um, one or more fallbacks embedded into the contract, seemingly uh, precisely for the situation of LIBOR not being available, at least for a given day, uh, if not forever, then there is real difficulty in implying terms that would contradict one of those fallbacks. So I guess the, <clears throat> the question then is, where does that leave you? Um, uh, if you don't have claims available based on construction or in, uh, contractual construction or implied terms. So we've had to think about, we've had to think about some other types of claims that might be available. And probably the best market to uh, really expose what types of claims are available is the derivatives market uh, for reasons which will become obvious as I continue to speak. Um, now, the derivatives market, of course, is um, pretty much all OTC derivatives contracts are governed by the ISDA Master Agreement. And in some respects, that should make things um, a bit easier for legacy documentation because they're all standard form, they're bilateral in nature, you can identify your counterparty, um, and there is a mechanism to enable amendment of historic contracts by signing up to a protocol. Uh, but as I'm informed by Nick May, one of our uh, partners who's the expert on derivatives apparently about 20 or 25 entities have signed up to that protocol so far which is a tiny fraction of what is a multi-trillion dollar market um, and exemplifies the fact that these the protocol really just isn't being invoked and so there's going to be a significant number of legacy contracts which are not amended so it doesn't provide a complete answer and the problem with the derivatives market is that under the ISDA Master Agreement, there is only one fallback, and that is what's known as the dealer poll method, which essentially involves a calculation agent going to a number of banks to obtain reference rates and then doing an arithmetic mean of those rates. And the problem is that if we're in a world 
post 2021 where banks aren't compelled to submit rates, then they may be unwilling or unable to uh, provide such rates. And that means that the fallback under the contract just won't work. So it means that there are a number of different types of claims in that market, which I can highlight for you now. So the first one, um, which I'll lead you through, is one based on the idea of uh, contractual machinery. So here we're thinking about is LIBOR an objective measure that the court can determine? And we raise this because of a case called Sudbrook Trading and Eggleton, which is a House of Lords decision where the court found that the valuation machinery had broken down under a lease and the court was able to substitute alternative machinery. But that was only where the machinery was decided to be subsidiary and inessential to what the parties had agreed. So whether or not this type of argument can be made in a libel context is probably going to be very market-specific um, and product-dependent. And I think within the derivatives market, for example, if you think about the idea of an interest rate swap, which has fixed versus LIBOR payment legs, it might be difficult to say that LIBOR is subsidiary or inessential. So what other claims might be available? Well, potentially force majeure or frustration. I think they're quite interesting claims to consider uh, together because you have the situation where uh, one potentially force majeure can provide more orderly financial consequences of LIBOR discontinuation and the other frustration might lead to a slightly more chaotic scenario. So just briefly on force majeure, it's an interesting one in the derivatives market because um, under the two versions of the ISDA Master Agreement, 1992 doesn't have a force majeure clause, whereas 2002 ISDA does. And under 2002 ISDA, where there's a force majeure event, that's a termination event, it will end the trades and provide for the mechanism for closeout payment to be made. And so that's our slightly more orderly financial consequences scenario. Um, frustration, on the other hand, say we're under the 1992 ISDA, so there's no force majeure clause, um, and you have LIBOR discontinuation, then could that amount to a frustrating event because, and therefore the parties be discharged from their future obligations uh, on the basis that the, root, the whole root and purpose of the contract is to pay interest? And then under frustration, there would be no mechanism for a closeout payment to be made, hence the slightly more... Um, chaotic scenario. Now I say slightly because of course even if it's considered to be a force majeure event under the 2002 ISDA and even that is you know reading and interpreting that clause that force majeure clause in such a way as to say that LIBOR discontinuation amounts to force majeure event but assuming that it would uh, even then there would need to be uh, significant replacement hedges put in place and even with the calculation of the closeout payment we've seen from the financial crisis and the collapse of Lehman Brothers still 10 years later there are cases going through the court trying to determine whether or not the closeout payment was calculated correctly so that is not going to be the solution to all problems to enable an orderly transition start to get a, a, an idea of the scale and the breadth, breadth of this. Um, so, thanks. That's a, a sort of high-level um, look at the, the contractual claims. 
Uh, what about any any investor claims coming about from sort of changes of products? Um, what what sort of might that throw up? Yeah, there are some fairly obvious claims that might arise as a result of the nature of the product changing. So take the classic example that we've referred to a couple of times now of a floating rate LIBOR-linked uh, bond shifting to a fixed rate bond as a result of the fallback mechanism applying and reverting to the last published LIBOR rate when LIBOR discontinues. That will have, I'm quite sure, quite significant consequences for the holders of those bonds. It's quite possible that significant market disruption might uh, arise as a result of a certain portion of the market not being able to continue to hold those bonds and therefore liquidating those into the market and triggering price uh, falls uh, inevitably as a result. So the spectre of potential investor claims um, arises uh, very obviously here. One uh, type of claim that might be brought is a issuer liability type claim. So either a misrepresentation act 1967 claim or potentially under Section 90 of FISMA, which uh, if a prospectus or listing particulars have been published in relation to a particular bond, gives rise to a cause of action for investors who've suffered a loss as a result of any defect in the documentation. What that defect might be uh, is, of course, a little bit dependent on uh, what actually happens. But suppose you've got a prospectus which does not refer to the risk of LIBOR changing uh, either as methodology or potentially even discontinuing, um, whether it's as a, a risk factor or some other description within the documentation. One can foresee potential claims brought by investors who will say we were missold the um, uh, product, we were not adequately warned of the potential risks embedded within the product um, and that we therefore have a claim under one or other of those causes of action. The other obvious candidate would be a, a, a traditional mis-selling claim, so whether that's as a result of a breach of an advisory duty or some other um, misrepresentation type claim, particularly from the sellers of bonds linked to LIBOR um, or the intermediaries for those sales. Um, and there's a, obviously a plethora of cases um, that have been looking at those types of claims. Um, and this is a potential another um, uh, form of that type of claim, which we may well see arising if investors say that they were missold something um, uh, because they thought it was going to continue to be linked to LIBOR. Well, that sounds like there, there's a, a lot of litigation in store, but is there any prospect of of the regulator stepping in and, and doing something? Uh, well, interesting. So in the absence of a broader fix being introduced, um, we can readily see the risk of large volumes of litigation caused by legacy documents reverting to a fallback which was just not envisaged to apply in the event of a permanent discontinuation of LIBOR. But there are rumblings of a legislative fix, for example, to treat all references to LIBOR as references to SONIA, as happened for the switch to the euro. But this really would be a blunt instrument, as it would not accommodate the nuance in the way in which the value transfer between LIBOR and SONIA will affect the different financial markets. 
And this point really underlies the desire of the regulators for the markets to fix a problem which they see as a real market problem. Um, So in this podcast, we've focused on legacy documents, but new and amended contracts do not avoid the difficulties of LIBOR discontinuation altogether because we do not yet have a solution. So new and amended contracts are essentially in a holding pattern until such a solution is agreed upon for the various markets. The fallbacks in those sorts of contracts are, generally speaking, an improvement on legacy versions, but similar litigation risks arise, along also with some new ones, such as the operation of consent mechanisms in order to amend. So we, we, don't, we just don't have time to cover these sorts of risks in this short podcast, uh, but it is a developing area on which we are keeping a very close eye. Brilliant. Well, thank you uh, to both of you, Harry and Kerry, for your insights. Like you say, there's so much more to be said. We'll have you back uh, at another point in the future to tell us more. But until then, uh, thank you to you both and thanks to everyone for listening. You have been listening to a podcast brought to you by Herbert Smith Freehills. For more episodes, please go to our channel on iTunes or SoundCloud and visit our website herbertsmithfreehills.com for more insights relevant to your business.